today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The news today, obviously, two records uh, being broken in Ontario. The number of de- uh, the number of cases at, at uh, 3519, I believe, and the number of deaths at 89. That surpasses the record number of deaths for one day, which was back uh, in April, I guess, April 30th at 86 during the first wave. So I guess that officially confirms the first wave is uh, worse than the second. Uh, sorry, the second wave is worse than the first. Um, again, uh, announcements now coming out that uh, uh, Quebec will have a curfew as of this Saturday. And we understand that coming up later today at 3 o'clock that uh, medical officials in Ontario will announce Ontario will continue online school until possibly uh, January 25th. Sources say that has not been confirmed yet. We will know more after uh, 3 o'clock. To talk more about where we are and where we're going and where this uh where this uh, coronavirus is going. Let's bring in Dr. Ross Upshur, professor at the Dolly, or sorry, at the Dal Atlanta School of Public Health with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Ross, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I hope the same for you. Thanks for the invitation. Your thoughts on uh, the latest developments between obviously two of the busiest provinces when it comes to this pandemic, Quebec and Ontario, Ontario announcing that it's uh, going to continue online education uh, at least, uh, well, again, we haven't got this verified yet, but possibly until the 25th of January, Quebec announcing a curfew coming up uh, this weekend. Your thoughts on both those issues? Well, uh, unfortunately, Ontario and Quebec are not alone in seeing, uh, you know, rapid escalation in case counts. This is happening in many jurisdictions around the world who are similarly struggling to contain and control the uh, coronavirus pandemic. You know, as we've seen, there's been dramatic increases in cases in both uh, the UK, the US, and various jurisdictions uh, in uh, Europe and elsewhere. Uh, so what we know is that uh, as case counts are increasing, they're reflecting events that have occurred usually 10 to 14 days before, which means that we can look to anticipating to seeing uh, further increases in case counts. Now, all of this means that we have to take much more concerted efforts to uh, bring this uh, pandemic under control while we're waiting to roll out vaccines to hopefully mitigate that spread. We were talking before the holidays, and there was lots of emphasis from health officials, politicians alike, saying, and that's what obviously caused the the fear when when many politicians took off on holidays, but many were saying, we've got to batten down the hatches over the holidays, or we are going to see a spike. Here we are, uh, two weeks roughly after after the holiday, after Christmas, a week since uh, since New Year's. Are, is this spike that we're seeing due to those holiday gatherings? Well, it may or it may not be, and we could certainly, uh, you know, there was already ongoing transmission in the community before we uh, issued warnings about uh, battening down the hatches for the holidays. Uh, the evidence seems to be that people variably took those uh, that advice under uh, under advisement and behaved as they saw fit, and we will certainly see, uh, certainly if we see steeper, incline, you know, increases over the next uh, 10 to 14 days, we will know uh, uh, that people over the holidays were, in fact, not, uh, you know, sheltering in place, resting at home, and uh, practicing social distancing. Talk about. So, are, are we still are we still waiting to see the results of the holiday? Is it still early to gauge that? 
So, uh, yeah, we're only at the seventh, and usually you're looking at a seven to 14 day uh, uh, lag uh, from cases to when they're uh, from their source of uh, transmission. So, we're still within the sort of interval where we would see uh, uh, cases that were transmitted during the holidays. So, we're not, we're not by any means uh, out of this or over this, as quite contrary, uh, we're seeing uh, continued increases. So, the line is just going up. Uh, obviously, uh, lots of opinion here on what we should do, how we should move forward with this. A group of doctors uh, in a new report called Building the Canadian Shield uh, have uh, released a framework to avoid a mass kind of lockdown. What is the best way through this? I mean, we all know Jan, February are going to be the darkest hours of this pandemic. Yeah, and it's unfortunately the case. So, I mean, we can talk about where we're at now, and uh, I think many of our missed opportunities, say, back in the summer and the fall, uh, are something that we can go back to uh, when we do our evaluations of our performance. Uh, we do know from other jurisdictions, and the best example would be what happened, for example, in Melbourne or in Australia, where when they said we're going into lockdown, they did go into a fairly stringent lockdown. People were only allowed out for an hour a day. Uh, you know, uh, there were curfews. Uh, there was enforcement of these. but And it took a while. It took, I think, six or seven weeks before cases came down, but they did go down. We need to invest in strategies, and we need to all take this on seriously to get the case counts down to where we can enact and meaningfully uh, engage in test tracing and isolation and follow-up. Um, we were there, for example, in August. The percent positivity was only about 2.2% of tests, uh, but we didn't put in place the kind of contact tracing and infection prevention and control and internalization of uh, physical distancing measures uh, that would have mitigated to some extent what we're seeing now in this wave. Um, wouldn't moving indoors uh, in the winter just naturally increase this? Will coming out the other end, will we naturally see a, a decline? Obviously, now we're in a position where vaccines are ramping up, but so is uh, obviously the second wave of this. When do these two lines intersect? When will we see the reaction of the vaccination and just the seasonal changes that this could bring? Well, those are the, so I think you are right to point out that the next few months are going to be probably uh, as hard as it is to, to uh, believe, uh, probably the most difficult months that we faced since uh, this started last February. I mean, it mostly hit us in March, April. Uh, so I think, you know, we need to really uh, sort of, as you said, batten down the hatches. Everybody do what they're being asked by public health. And uh, the hope would be, and it remains to be seen whether it will be the case, that we can uh, deploy the vaccine and, and the vaccine actually interrupts tr transmission uh, and that we will, that this be virus behaves seasonally like some other viruses do. But we haven't actually uh, seen that to be the case. It seems mm. to be there's, there's still a large proportion of the population uh, that is non-immune or hasn't been exposed. And I think that's you know, a good example of what's happening uh, is that there's still a large number of people who've not been exposed. So there's a large susceptible population still. And we've heard from earlier on that the temperature seasons don't really affect this virus much. It's the effect. It, what it does affect is the behavior of uh, uh, of people being inside. So obviously, yeah. if you're in a closed encounter, so, but if you know, we're inside in small numbers, uh, then it's not likely to be an engine of uh, transmission. 
as opposed to, you know, uh, indoors in auditoriums or at mm-hmm. concert halls or bingo halls or gyms, right? So if those larger congregation settings are off limits, then it's going to have an impact. And in fact, there was a recent study that showed that very carefully, that the biggest uh, impact in terms of reduction of transmission uh, came from restricting the number of interactions to the to, uh, indoors, even to a smaller number. So wherever you have more people congregated on an, in an indoor environment, then you've got a, a breeding ground for transmission. And this has are, been established pretty much everywhere around the world where they've studied it. Are we understanding that? Is the public understanding that considering how fatigued we are right now? I mean, some people are saying, well, how come we can do this and we can't do that? How come we can go there, but we can't go there? And, and really, you hit the nail on the head here. It's not about where we're going, what we're doing. It's about the people that we're around and the number of people that yep. we're around. Yeah, and that that should be fairly simple to grasp, uh, even though it's onerous. And, you know, it's affecting you, it's affecting me. We all are, you know, humans are sociable by nature. Uh, but for the short term, we're going to have to just adjust our behavior and uh, be content with smaller smaller gatherings, if any gatherings at all, right? There was lots of chatter a couple of weeks ago about a new variant in the UK, yeah. which ended up suspending flights there. We've also heard of another one in, uh, in Africa as well. How concerned are you about these new variants and the ability to the vac- of the vaccine to contain this? So I think, you know, we're all getting an education on the behavior of viruses. So, uh, so, so, you know, I have an interest in viral upper respiratory uh, tract infection. So I know that viruses mutate naturally, right? It's what uh, uh, respiratory viruses in particular like to do. Uh, they have a high uh, propensity to mutate uh, naturally and under sort of external pressures. Uh, coronaviruses are not the most highly mutating uh, type of respiratory viruses. Uh, Certainly they don't mutate anywhere nearly as quickly, for example, as uh, influenza viruses do. Now, one of the things that the mutant, so-called mutant strain, uh, has been uh, now found, I think, in 20 or 30 countries. So part of it is a bit of of an effect of people sequencing the virus. And the UK, where it was first discovered, uh, has uh, quite extensive capacity to do genomic sequencing. So the more you look, the more you will find it. But we ought not to be surprised by mutations in the virus. What we do need to know, uh, and what, and uh, actually there's a, a fairly uh, important meeting that's been called next Tuesday uh, by the World Health Organization to look at the implications of these newly emerging strains. So far, they don't seem to be more virulent. That is, they don't cause more disease. They don't cause uh, uh, increased mortality, uh, but they seem, and they may, in fact, but that's still unclear, they may uh, transmit slightly faster. If that is the case, then that's something to be uh, mindful of because it means we'll have to be even more uh, extra careful about the uh, kind of precautions that we're using. It may make mask wearing indoors and outdoors advisable. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the world is convening uh, uh, to look at the implications of this, and I think there'll be some recommendations about that coming out. 
As to its effect on the vaccine, it's unclear as yet and probably unlikely that it will affect the vaccine, Uh, though I don't want to go out uh, and be too categorical about that because it's early days. But just to reiterate, mutations in viruses are to be expected. Uh, It happens as part of their sort of natural uh, uh, ecosystem and and cycle. And the implications for human health uh, will become much more clear because, uh, again, once the world's uh, mind are kind of uh, concentrated on the task, as we've seen with the development of vaccines, uh, we can get a lot done in a short period of time. Man, we've proven that over the last several months, haven't we? Uh, I don't want to draw the comparison to influenza and this because, again, we know they are different things but do have similarities. But one of those similarities, uh, we talked about the mutation which happens, and this is how we arrive at a new flu shot every year. It, it, it It includes those mutations. Would that be accurate? Yeah, so so influenza, which is the virus that I've studied the most, is is a fascinating uh, virus. Like coronaviruses, uh, well reservoired through nature, can be found in various different species. Uh, has a particular propensity for you know birds in particular, but can be found in in you know pigs and seals and horses. So influenza gets around, and it 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 mutates rather rapidly, and it shifts. So, and there's a variety of different strains. So every year we get a vaccine that has three components, usually one that's an influenza B, and then two of what we expect to be the most dominant circulating strains. And those circulating strains are estimated or uh, determined by what's happening usually in the South because uh, they're in winter when we're in summer and vice versa. So it's a little bit of informed uh, uh, epidemiological work to determine what goes into the vaccine because, of course, with production schedules, you have to make that decision rather early in the game. And the hope is, of course, that you have a good match between the circulating strain and the vaccine strain, uh, and in which case you get the best protection. However, if there is no match between the circulating strain and the vaccine strain, uh, uh, we're we're, we're left uh, relatively vulnerable. Uh, Johnson & Johnson now has a, uh, a vaccine in the pipeline going through the final stages of trial. Uh, what stands out for this one is that it's a single dose. What can you tell us about this, and, and is this a game changer? Well, it will depend very much on what the efficacy readout, as they say, uh, shows. And that's supposed to be sometime this month. It's an adenovirus vaccine, so it's, uh, it's, it doesn't work like the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines. Its virtues are, so far, it requires only one intramuscular shot. And uh, it also doesn't have as stringent cold chain requirements. So and and they've agreed to sell it at, at cost uh, additionally. So if it proves to be uh, highly effective as the other vaccines have, it certainly has some uh, uh, features that make it a much more desirable uh, vaccine for rapid uh, scale and spread because you're not uh, you know reliant upon uh, deep freeze uh, as you are for the Pfizer vaccine. Will one of these, once the vaccines are all rolled out, will one prove to be better than the other or will the logistics determine which one is more successful? For example, the Pfizer, the first one to come out, everybody was ranting and raving, but obviously extreme logistics needed with the cold temperatures and such. Uh, The next vaccine rolls out, uh, the Moderna, it's a lot easier. This one seems to be even more so. Will it be the efficacy that decides or will it be the logistics of how easily we can get this from point A to point B? I think we're going to be faced with some very interesting decisions to make. 
Uh, I mean, quite honestly, I was astonished at the high efficacy reported in both the Pfizer and Moderna studies. Uh, it's hard to sort of go back to November, but we were meeting, uh, you know, uh, I do work with the World Health Organization, talking about what we're going to do with a 60% uh, effective vaccine with a minimal, uh, you know, confidence range yeah. of 30%. And then you get these 90, 95% uh, efficacy readings, which were well above what anybody was expecting, and really uh, first time in history for respiratory viruses. So uh, let's say, hypothetically speaking, J&J comes in at 80%. Uh, how do we then uh, make trade-off or inform decisions about what we're going to uh, implement? Uh, do we favor something that has the elegance of one time only and no cold chain, over, but you're going to sacrifice a little bit in terms of efficacy? So, and, and of course, there's more and more vaccines uh, uh, still in the pipeline and, and uh, we'll be reporting uh, over this following year. So policymakers are going to have to have a framework for making a decision about how to navigate these very complex trade-offs. And of course, on a global level, because we're not safe until the entire world is covered, you know, what's feasible for scale and spread uh, in low and middle income countries and how good a coverage will that uh, provide us and how quickly can we get the vaccine out to everybody. And, you know, simply vaccinating everybody in Ontario would be laudable in and of itself, but it does very little to bring the coronavirus pandemic to an end. Um, you were mentioning the World Health Organization news this week. They are starting a probe into COVID-19 and, and its origins and, and reaction to it. Are you confident we'll get the answers we need from this World Health Organization probe? Well, we'll get some answers, and I think a lot of it depends on uh, cooperation with the in, the in the context of where they're doing their investigation. Um, I think we'll get some answers to some of the questions, but really uh, we ought to be thinking not just of this coronavirus, but um, all of the other viruses that are out there, known and unknown, uh, and, you know, our old friend influenza and the many pathogens that have pandemic potential. And as horrible as this been, you know, I've been involved in pandemic preparedness for close to 20 years. This is not as bad as we were anticipating. It's, uh, you know, the mortality rate has been significant, yes, but there are viruses that have, you know, greater lethality and perhaps transmissibility uh, looming down the road that we need to be equally prepared for. So what do we what's the best plan of attack here to try to prevent this from ever happening again by going to the source of origin or just it's going to happen? Be ready for it. I think a combination of both. And part of what I think the uh, World Health Organization, so they're taking what's called a one health approach. So they're not there to blame and shame the government uh, of China. They're there to understand the upstream roots of viral emergence. And so that's why if you look at the team that's going over there, they've got expertise in virology and veterinary medicine and ecology and infectious diseases, uh, because this is a real opportunity for us to learn how a new virus emerges out of wherever it emerged from. We know a little bit about its reservoir in bats and other species, uh, but to see what actually triggered 
this sort of leap from uh, the sort of uh, animal ecology into human ecology. And we've got, you know, previous examples of this. Ebola is a good example, as is, uh, you know, HIV AIDS. So it's not that we don't have experience or recently with these types of events. We have an abundance of it, but we've not really, uh, as a species, uh, wrapped our head around how we best prepare and plan and be able to respond to future pathogen threats. So I think it's... Where do you... Mm, Sorry? Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's, so if we don't, you know, learn now, <laughs> you know, I keep saying we've had like four public health emergencies of international concern uh, since H1N1 in 2009. We've had Zika, we've had Ebola, mm. and now we've got SARS coronavirus too. Uh, and many of us who work in this circle have been saying we need a global strategy for pandemic preparedness and response, and it's time now that we get on with the business of resourcing it, and that means building global surveillance, global response, and instead of cutting public health, uh, we, you know, we invest in having that reserve capacity so that we can respond when it occurs. The problem is it doesn't come on a timetable. It doesn't say, you know, January 21st, 2024, a new virus will be here, you know, just giving you a heads up. It comes when it comes. And by the time, you know, if there's a couple of years between the last one and the next one, we start to cut away from the budget of those kind of responses. So we can't keep behaving like this and not expect the kind of consequences that we've seen with SARS-CoV-2. Here's hoping this time it changes the discussion. Uh, where do you, last question, where do you see us one year from now? Well, uh, there's sort of optimistic scenarios and there's uh, more pessimistic scenarios. The optimistic scenario is that we're able to roll out the vaccine not just here, uh, but to a substantial proportion of the uh, uh, population globally. Uh, that permits us to uh, get our you know, lives back together. Uh, I hope we will think about some of the ways that we can learn from this. The pessimistic scenario is that the vaccines, in fact, do not uh, block transmission. Um, or that they, you know, uh, you know, hopefully it's going to happen. So the pessimistic scenario is that we're like more than two-thirds of the way out of it, but we're still having isolated outbreaks uh, hither and yon. Um, but I'm really hoping that we're going to put concerted efforts into uh, bringing this under control in 2021. Dr. Ross, we up here is... We know how to do it, we just have to do it. Yeah, that's right. And get through the fatigue. Dr. Russ Opsher has been with us, professor at the Dalatlana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have a good afternoon and be well yourself. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Quebec government is imposing an overnight curfew and extending the closure of non-essential businesses for a month in an effort to slow this pandemic in order to slow COVID-19. Mark, uh, Mike Armstrong is with us, Global National uh, Co- uh, Quebec correspondent. <laughs> Global National Quebec correspondent Mike Armstrong is with us now. Mike, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Very well. Thank you. So what's the mood like? I mean, uh, this is a pretty big deal. The first time, uh, first one in Canada, that's for sure, about an overnight curfew. Give us the details. Yeah, well, as of this Saturday, uh, Quebecers province-wide will be under a curfew. Uh, so basically after, uh, let me get the hours right here, 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. each day, as of Saturday night, uh, you're not going to be allowed to be out on the streets 
The uh, Justice Minister actually is having a press conference as we speak, uh, just giving a bit more detail on uh, what it's going to mean. Uh, But it will be, possibly, potentially, it could mean if you're caught caught out on the streets, a fine of $1,000 to $6,000. They're still working with the Justice Department to make sure those possible fines are on the book by this weekend. Uh, There are exceptions to the curfew. Um, For example, if you're out for health reasons or if you're going to a job that has been deemed essential and you're needed, um, then you can be out on the street. That said, um, the government's saying the responsibility falls to the person who's out, not to police. Um, You have to be able to prove that you're out for a reason. And so they've actually put sort of documents online that companies can use, uh, print out, and and, uh, that people could carry with them to say, this is why I'm out on the streets. Um, A fine of up to $6,000. Yeah, it's uh, it's supposed to dissuade people from being out, and uh, I think that that that's uh, a hefty fine. So, how what is the reaction to this from Quebecers? Fairly mixed. I mean, a lot of people. There were calls for this, by the way, for weeks. Uh, uh, experts that got together and put to, put out uh, sort of uh, letters to the editor and open letters to the government saying something had to be done. Uh, when the government started locking things down in uh, sort of early and uh, mid-December again, and things got tighter, schools closed on the 17th, um, non-essential businesses were closed as of Christmas Day, and they haven't reopened, uh, things like that. People were saying, okay, we're at 1,500, 1,600 cases a day. We have to do more. Now we're at 25, 2,600 cases a day. So um, there was no way for the government to roll back the measures. They had to look for something else to do. The government's calling this, uh, the premier called this shock therapy. He said, look, we studied all sorts of different scenarios to see what we could do. All of them inconvenienced people. All of them were bad. Um, this is one that we're going to add. Um, this is the one we, we came down upon. There are people... Critics who say that this won't help. Uh, there's a gentleman, Dr. Carl Weiss, who, uh, a, an expert of the Jewish General here in Montreal, who said this morning, he's saying that, look, you can have this curfew, but it might have the opposite effect. Instead of sort of going maybe more people shopping in the evening and, and later into the evening, like 8 or 9 o'clock, now mm-hmm. all these people might do their shopping between 5 and 6 and 6 and 7, and suddenly there are more people congregating in the same place. But the government says, look, well, they want to dissuade are people who are out, and it's a minority, it's maybe you know, 10 or 20%, but the minority that's not respecting the laws right now, uh, that are gathering in the evening at other people's houses, things like that. Um, basically, the Justice Minister moments ago said, if you're already following the rules that are out there, this isn't going to inconvenience you very much. You know, that's an interesting point that you've just brought up, Mike, because I'm thinking if you're in a lockdown, what is this going to do? How does this add an extra layer? There, that's exactly right. And, and what the government is saying is it, what it's supposed to add is uh, an, an, an opportunity just before you leave your house to reflect again on whether you really need to go out. And it's, as I said, it's not for everybody. It's for the people that are breaking the rules already. Uh, too little, too late? The, well, it, it, you can argue that uh, because the numbers are out of control. The, the healthcare system in Quebec is at the breaking point, the rupture point. They keep saying that to us. Um, but then again, the, there are people saying that they should have held this back and not done it yet. That this is the last resort. But then you end up with you know this this weapon, which is supposed to be just sort of another um, one measure among many. Uh, but what if you keep that in your pocket too long? 
and then it really is too late. Um, so the government uh, jumped, the, jumped at it yesterday. Uh, look, Ontario's premier was asked about this yesterday, and he mm-hmm. said he's going to be talking to François Legault, and it's not off the table in Ontario either. It hasn't happened much in Canada. We're not used to it. Um, we really aren't. Um, in, in Quebec, we had sort of in the major cities in the October crisis, there were curfews at, po- at some times, some points. Uh, but you have to go back to the world wars where there were curfews to cut down on sabotage and things like that. Um, but that's a long time ago. So we're, we really aren't used to it. Other countries like in Europe, uh, in France and Germany and uh, even in the U.K. with the IRA and things like that, there were curfews in the U.K., so people there are more used to it. By the way, I spent a little bit of time looking at curfews around the world yesterday, and there are curfews right now in France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Lebanon, Senegal, Kenya, Zimbabwe, South Africa. Like it is Jamaica, Barbados, like there are curfews all over. We just really aren't used to it, and you know, freedom of movement is part of our charter. And that's what makes this very uncomfortable. Uh, If people, you talked about how most of the people are complying, the majority of the people are complying. This is for the few that aren't. But if they're not following lockdown rules, will they follow a curfew rule? Or does this give police the power to actually enforce something? I think that's, it's another tool that police can use to get people off the streets. Um, They're now going to be able to stop anybody they want to stop. It's going to be darn hard, though. I mean, if you're on a bridge and you're watching cars whip by, how do you pick which cars to stop? But I guess it's probably more the suburbs, like the area where I live. If you're out on the streets, and I was out last night at midnight for something else, and there's nobody out there. So now, you know, a week from now, if you're out at midnight, you can probably expect to be stopped. And this is in effect for four weeks. Yeah, yeah, that... (laughs) I, it, that's a really good thing to uh, to highlight. It's it's not a, a one week or a two week short thing. You're right. It's uh, four weeks, and so Quebecers will be living under this curfew until the eighth of February. It is a long time. And what about their numbers today, and where they are in this? Because we remember certainly in the first wave they were taking a, a massive hit. Yeah, I was. We were at twenty six hundred uh, yesterday. I haven't seen the numbers uh, today at this point. But they really, you know, it, it is interesting. I, another thing that people will find interesting about the measures announced, uh, non-essential stores here have been closed since December 25th, as I said earlier, and they're also going to stay closed until February 8th. Uh, but grocery stores and convenience stores are now being asked to close uh, by 7.30 in the evening. So really the only places that are going to be open at night are gas stations and uh, pharmacies. Uh, but factories and offices that aren't essential are supposed to shut down. Churches, mosques, synagogues, they're supposed to close. Uh, we're back to funerals being limited to uh, only 10 people. And then schools. Uh, elementary kids were supposed to go back uh, Monday. That's going ahead. They still will go back Monday. But high schools uh, aren't going to be reopening. They're going to do an extra week uh, of online classes. So I just want to point out, like the curfew is just one of many measures that the government's uh, trying to employ. But fascinating, unlike Ontario, they are not extending the online learning for the elementary kids at home. Yeah. Wow, nope. that is uh, it is interesting. They're, they're gonna, there's going to be added uh, mask use in, in classes. Uh, that's about all that they're doing for the elementary schools. And all more, right, there uh, you. I should add, Go more, ahead. more uh, air filtration. All right, Mike Armstrong has been with us, Global National Quebec correspondent, talking about the Quebec government imposing a overnight curfew as of this weekend. Mike, thanks for the time. Uh, much appreciated. Be well.
Thank you very much. You too. All right. So many aspects of COVID-19. One of the latest to uh, emerge this week was uh, testing at Toronto Airport. And uh, this has been an ongoing situation uh, between the Ontario government and the federal government pretty much since this pandemic started. And that was there should be or should there be uh, testing of everyone that gets off a plane at Pearson uh, International Airport. And uh, obviously that has started. What does that do to the way we fly is this possible what sort of wrench does it throw into the spokes of travel uh, especially when it comes to the person that actually has to do the flying let's bring in dr marion jopi professor with the school of hospitality food and tourism management at the university of guelph and is with us now uh, marion thanks for the time i hope you're doing well yes thank you so how much more, uh, what does this add to the average air traveler? What are some of the challenges now that there is testing required to enter Canada through Toronto? Well, it makes Canada probably one of the toughest countries to get into because you still have to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, they have not removed that, um, even if you test negative. Um, so really very, very stringent rules. The, the difficulty and why they are doing the pilot program at Pearson, of course, is because in many countries where people are coming from, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to get a PCR test. Uh, a lot of the, the islands and, and poorer countries simply don't have the health infrastructure required to deal with tourists when they can barely deal with their own population. Uh, for many months, there's been criticism with the federal government and um, perhaps lack of monitoring or testing or tracing of people that have been coming in. That being said, you're saying that now this makes it for some of the most strictest uh, regulations uh, uh, in the world. What are the other jurisdictions doing uh, at airports to keep the citizens safe? Uh, well, if many of them are not doing anything at the airports. Many of them are imposing quarantine. So it's a real hodgepodge out there. Um, every country does its own thing. And uh, the industry, especially the airline industry, through their organization, IATA, the International Air Transport um, Association, is desperately trying to get countries to coordinate efforts. And what they would like to see is actually uh, testing and uh, three times once within 72 hours of uh, your flight, uh, once upon a second time upon arrival, and a third time about a week later. And they think that would be far more effective um, and, and would really catch anybody uh, that might have contracted COVID, as opposed to quarantine where we know people simply flaunt it. Hmm. Um, so if you have to fly, if you're a Canadian that has to fly out of the country, obviously you got to fly back in. What recommendations do you have for them? Well, if, if it truly is essential travel, um, then... And I guess, uh, we should, I guess we should be uh, definite of that right off the top, that you're not supposed to be doing this unless it's essential. Correct, correct. And that has not changed, and that is starting to become very annoying to many Canadians who are, you know, obeying the rules and giving up a lot, uh, not seeing family, including family that may be ill or, or even dying. And, and then we see people traveling for fun to vacations and even people in positions where you sort of say, aren't you supposed to be showing leadership? 
uh, in what we need to do. So I think there's a lot of anger building um, amongst the population seeing this kind of uh, behavior. Where do you see, obviously you're involved in travel management and the industry and such and, and researching that, where do you see, obviously has, this business has taken a tremendous hit just like the hospitality industry has, uh, travel industry, airlines uh, and such, where do you see this going one year from now? Um, w- will it be a case of once there's a vaccination, everybody will be so excited to get on a plane that uh, you won't be able to get a flight or will this be a gradual uh, uh, recovery? Well, Canadians are overall very um, anxious about traveling. You know, compared to the States, we we see our American neighbors, um, they're traveling to a much, much greater extent, even though their numbers are significantly higher than ours on a a per-population basis. Um, So Canadians are quite anxious about travel overall. So it'll probably be a, a rather gradual comeback of the industry, starting with domestic. Um, you know, once once we control it a bit better in, in the various provinces, people will say, feel safe to travel again uh, within the country. So that'll probably be the start. And we're hoping to see that really by the end of the summer and into the fall. Yes, it depends on vaccinations, although we're being told, you know, all the rules are going to continue. Even if we have been vaccinated, we will continue to have to social distance and wear masks and so on and so forth. Um, And then for international travel, it really depends upon the destination and how well they have coped with, um, with with the pandemic and whether they will actually allow foreign visitors in. Some countries are incredibly strict and uh, only residents are allowed to to come back to the country and they don't want foreigners. So um, it really depends upon um, where we're at in a year's time. The airline and travel industry uh, have been offering a plethora of deals, it seems, of late. They're on a, a bit of a marketing campaign to get people back up into the skies. Considering where we are, is that good messaging? Uh, well, again, um, for many people, it's just not working because, you know, the price may be right and even very appealing, but they're too anxious about the, the travel itself. Um, in, in Europe, they've actually had airlines, uh, uh, you know, get into real trouble because they have been basically promoting, well, get your vaccine and come book your, your trip. And that, of course, is counter to all of the official messaging. So, you know, airlines have gotten into trouble with some of the uh, promotions that they are running. Um, From their point of view, understandable. They have uh, implemented very, very strict health restrictions on on the plane. Um, Canada has the mandatory mask. Many airlines are doing that as well, even though their governments are not mandating it. Um, the, the real problem is anywhere where passengers bunch together. So that's the boarding process. That's the, you know, deboarding uh, the plane. Uh, people immediately stand up as soon as the plane lands, even though you're not yeah. even at the gate. Right? We've all seen it. Uh, and, and maybe that'll finally put a stop to that, Mary. And maybe <laughs> finally people will stay in their seats and physically distance till it actually stops rolling. Well, maybe, <laughs> but I think we have to be uh, realistic around people's behavior. 
uh, because you just shake your head at some of them. But those are the areas really that are the um, the difficult parts with, with airline travel and where infections can occur. Uh, it isn't actually so much sitting in your seat and, and keeping your mask on and, and not moving too much. Uh, that's really not where it's happening. It's these other points of the travel journey. We've certainly seen how this has affected the hospitality industry. Uh, we're at the point now where some restaurants are saying they're not going to reopen, uh, and, and it's just affected certain uh, certain establishments that way. What will the long-term effect be uh, on the travel industry? Will we see resorts close? Will we see airlines uh, cut back or, or, or go under? How, how is this going to affect this industry long-term? Yeah, yeah, I think we'll see a little bit of all of that in, in- we started to see it. Um, uh, small places cannot necessarily survive, uh, especially with the second lockdown. Um, so we are going to see more and more bankruptcies, but also mergers. And especially at the airline front, uh, we're going to see a number of, of mergers and, and major airlines going under, especially where governments are not stepping in to provide support. Um, in, in some countries they are, in others they're not. So there too, it's a, it's a real mixed bag out there. But uh, yes, we will see a lot less supply on the market as a result of this. And it'll take probably three to four years minimum to, to sort of come back to where we were in 2019. Uh, We've which often- was the height of the tourism boom, if you will. We often talk on the show how uh, this will affect business in the future or life in the future, how life post-pandemic will be different from that pre-pandemic. Do you see changes that are happening in this industry that will stick? Yes, we're seeing that um, and and probably the latest because airlines had done it already for, for quite a while, but the hotels are now doing a lot of contactless. Um, interactions and, and bringing in, yeah. you know, robots and, and those kinds of things into a variety of positions so that you don't have to interact with people, that you can do the, the touchless, the, um, you know, uh, no, no, no human contact. Um, we actually just uh, completed a study not too long ago um, looking at what is happening in the hotel industry and how hotel guests as well as hotel managers are responding to uh, robotization. And overall, it's been like a huge increase because until this happened, uh, people wanted that human touch, that human connection, even in the hotels. And now they're saying, no, no, I'll be fine. You know, I, I just show me where my room is. Make sure my room has been cleaned. I want to be safe. And that's more important to them. So we will see a tremendous change from that perspective. And they're talking similarly um, for a lot of adventure tours and, and, you know, having automated guides so that you're not with a real guide. And, mm. and all of those changes we'll see coming. What about drinking food on a plane? Well, on the shorter flights, um, you know, they, they haven't had that in a long time. They've had the, the coffee and tea and, and soft drinks. Um, they may still do some of that, but again, very careful with, you know, the gloves and the whole bit. Um, on longer flights, 
you kind of have to need to feed people mm-hmm. um, because you need to, to keep it up. So whether they'll say that you have to bring your own food um, or that they'll supply it um, remains to be seen. Yeah, here we go. Enjoy your bag lunch, so to speak. Uh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Marion Jopi has been with us, professor with the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph, talking about air travel post-COVID-19. Marion, thanks so much for the time and insight. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.